Okay, so we're back. Welcome back. I hope uh, so far that you found the information useful. Um, I have another one in regard to um, injections and vaccines uh, so that you may be able to make an informed decision about what you want to do for yourself and your family. This one has to do with Invermus 10. I can't say it. Invermectin. Okay. And it says coronavirus is Invermectin a game changer to treat COVID? That's what they're asking. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already so that you get these updated videos 
you participate in some of the live question and answer chat sessions that I do, and you also participate in some of these interviews I have with many world-renowned researchers and scientists. And if you have any questions, you can also reach me on Instagram at ECA Wellness and on Twitter at Yo Dr. Yo. I guess that was it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there are a couple I'm going to put together. Um, and kind of a run here. Uh, let me see what this one is. It's not it. Okay, here's a COVID-19 vaccine side effects. Considering Pfizer, COVID vaccine, possible side effects, allergy, rash on face, shortness of breath, puffy eye, lightheadedness. They went like too fast. There are also reports of four volunteers who had reactions. Bell's palsy, partial face paralysis. Effective in 95% of cases in phase three. Moderna, COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna's product is based on mRNA module. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration advisory panel has given an emergency. Researchers believe that it could show side effects similar to Pfizer's. Covaxin, Biotech. Covaxin is still in a trial phase and has not shown any serious side effects so far. About 375 participants are enrolled in the phase one out of 375 participants, only one person had shown side effects. However, due to the lack of data and information, there's no clarity on what the side effects are. 
Oxford Astra AstraZeneca. Any serious side effects of us Oxford AstraZeneca. However, the vaccine trials were put on hold on phase three and the later given chance to continue trials. Why vaccines have side effects? A vaccine purpose is to trigger an autoimmune reaction. Side effects such as fever, chills, and fatigue after a vaccine. High mild, no, mild side effects such as pain and swelling at the site. I apologize. I cannot read that fast. I read as much as I could read. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was an interesting one. I was hoping that they were going to do the talking, but guess not. Um, there is... Okay. Um, SARS-CoV-2 UK variant. This is what um, Dr. Campbell is talking about. And it says, does it matter? Darn right, it matters. A new variant of SARS-CoV-2 has been identified in the UK, and it's causing a lot of fear. In this video, I want to explain all about that variant and why I'm not concerned about it. Here's a headline from the New York Times this past weekend. The coronavirus is mutating. What does that mean for us? Well, actually, it probably doesn't mean very much. I would say this is not a headline because viral genomes are always mutating. I think the headline writer needs to bone up on his or her virology. So let's do that first before we talk about this variant. By the way, this headline this. is in reference to the variant in the UK. What is mutation? Let's define it because most people don't seem to get it right. This is a, a de definition of mutation from Principles of Virology, the fifth edition, a virology textbook of which uh, I am a co-author. And here we go. A mutation is a change in DNA or RNA comprising base changes in nucleotide additions, deletions, and rearrangements. And these changes, when these mutations occur in open reading frames, they can be manifested as changes in the proteins. So one or more base changes can produce a single amino acid substitution, a truncated protein or no protein. The terms mutation and deletion are used incorrectly or ambiguously to describe alterations in proteins. That is what the headline writer did. They used mutation to describe changes in protein. Viruses mutate all the time. Whether those mutations mean anything is the real question. Let's take a little bit closer look at that first. We know that genome mutation rates vary.
every genome, whether it's a human genome or a fly genome or a virus genome, a DNA virus and RNA virus, they all undergo mutations at every reproduction cycle because the enzymes that carry out replication of genomes make mistakes. Some organisms can correct the mistakes, but others can't. And this is a very informative graph. We're looking at genome mutation rate of different kinds of nucleic acids. And the mutation rate here is on the y-axis. It's substitutions per nucleotide per generation. In other words, every time the nucleic acid is copied, how many changes do we see per nucleotide? Coronaviruses, of which SARS-CoV-2 is a member, of course, single-stranded positive sense RNA viruses. So those are shown here in uh, yellow circles. And in general, these plus-stranded RNA viruses, their mutations rate can vary from 10 to the minus three. That is one in a thousand changes per nucleotide per generation, all the way down to about between 10 to the minus five and 10 to the minus six. One in a hundred thousand or one in a, in a million, much less. And there are, there are others in between as well. And you can see that bacteria have very low mutations rates. They have DNA genomes. The DNA enzymes can correct mutations. And uh, viroids have very high mutation rates. So the RNA viruses we're talking about today are right in the middle here, ranging in mutation rates anywhere from uh, one in a thousand to one about one in a million. Now, most RNA viruses don't have any ways to correct the mutations that the polymerases make. These are viral enzymes, of course. Coronaviruses are different. They have very large RNA genomes, 30,000 bases, and they have an error correction machinery. So their mutation rate is slightly less. However, it is still probably around one mutation per 10,000 or 20,000 bases per genome replication. You know, in an infected cell, if you make 10,000 genomes, let's say 10,000 base RNA genome where the frequency is one in 10,000 per reproduction cycle, you're going to make easily 10,000 RNAs in an infected cell. So basically every every base in the viral genome can be substituted. That's mutation. It happens all the time. And so look at let's look at it in terms of SARS-CoV-2 or coronaviruses. You know, these viruses get into cells, their RNA is translated, and then among the proteins made are those that are needed to do genome replication. You go from a plus strand to a minus strand to a to more plus strands, and of course those plus strands that eventually end up in new virus particles. Every time the genome replicates from plus to minus, from minus to plus, there's a certain frequency of errors being made. So all the viruses come out, and there are many thousands of viruses per cell uh, that are made, constitute a collection of mutants, a collection of mutants, which we call a quasi-species. For SARS-CoV-2, again, with a RNA genome of 30,000 bases, all the viruses that come out of a single cell in your upper respiratory tract, there are many, many different mutants. It's a collection of mutants schematized by this diagram on the right where every line is a virus genome and the symbols are different mutations. Every genome can be different. Not all of those viruses with mutant genomes make it. Some of the mutations are lethal. They destroy the ability of the virus to reproduce the next time it infects the cell. Many of them are neutral. They do nothing. And some of them may have an impact. So far with SARS-CoV-2, the impacts have been minimal. I haven't seen any that really have changed the course of disease. If we had one that changed the property, it would be called a strain. But we have no new strains yet. In my opinion, only variants. SARS-CoV-2 genome is always mutating. 
does it matter? The real question is whether the mutations are causing amino acid changes in proteins that make a difference. Just to give you a sense of how many mutations we've seen, this slide was made, I don't know, about a month or two ago, where in over 90,000 isolates, we have seen 12,000 mutations. And any two of those isolates differ by about 10 bases. So 10 out of 30,000 bases differ. And many of these have no consequence. They're actually just markers that we can use to do contact tracing. They have no effect on the way the virus reproduces. None of these mutations have led to a new strain. A strain is a variant that has a distinct biological property. And I mean in people. You can look in cells in the laboratory and find all kinds of differences, but what matters is in people. And as far as I'm concerned, none of the isolates so far have proven implications for human transmission or pathogenesis, including the latest variant isolated from the UK, which we'll get into detail in just a moment. It's very difficult to use epidemiological data, that is, looking at the spread of a virus in a population and conclude that a particular variant is spreading better. And here's why. It's because of something called the founder effect. So here on the left is our original population of viruses reproducing in an individual, say. And remember, because of all the mutations that go on, the viruses that come out of that person are a mixture of all different uh, viruses, as like we showed in this slide here. Every genome is different. But when that person transmits to another, it may not transmit all of them. Maybe a subset will be transmitted, shown here by the green and orange viruses, which have a particular set of mutations. And so now that virus is in the population, and everyone infected by it will contain those changes as well. So that's called the founder effect. And they, the changes just go along. Coincidentally, they're neutral, they have no effect, and they seem to spread uh, rapidly to a lot of people. It alarms people, but in fact, it's meaningless. And one of the ways you can look at this is because we know that SARS-CoV-2 spreading, when it happens, is actually done by uh, very few individuals. The rapid spread of a virus doesn't have to be a consequence of novel genome mutations. We know that transmission of SARS-CoV-2 occurs mainly by super spreader events. 80% of transmissions are caused by 10% of infectious individuals. This has been studied in a number of countries. Here's a paper out of Hong Kong where they identified the main transmission events were super spreader events in weddings and churches and bars and restaurants, for example. And so here on the very left in A is, is an example of a super spreader event. You have one individual B that went to a bar or a place with a lot of people, infected many others, who then go on and infect many others and so on and so forth. So you can see, I think, from this that if individual B in this diagram just happened to have a particular mutation in its genome that, say, led to a spike amino acid change, he or she would spread it to a lot of other people who would spread it to a lot of other people, and eventually it would be in a lot of people, and that's why we get scared when this, these kinds of events happen. But in fact, those changes can be neutral. They may not be neutral, but you better have some good data to distinguish between them being neutral and not. And in my opinion, we do not have such data yet. So I think anytime a particular amino acid change in the spike, which is what we're seeing now for the UK variant, whenever they spread in the population, it's simply a neutral spread. It's by this founder effect combined with super spreader events.
All right, so what about the UK variant? What's going on there? Let's look at the data. The first is a place where you should go to look at new sequence data. It's called GISAID, the Global Initiative on Sharing All Influenza Data. It's basically a website, gisaid.org, where you can go to. It was originally established to share influenza data, but now, of course, SARS-CoV-2 data are being shared. And whenever a new genome or genomes are sequenced, they're deposited here. So here's the new variant. That's the name of it. Uh, and the name comes from variant under investigation year 2020, month 12, variant number one. And this variant was defined by multiple spike changes. They're not mutations. These are the wording from the GSAID. Even them get it wrong. These are spike protein amino acid changes. The mutation is in the genome. And you may say, oh, Vinny, you're being pedantic. You have to get your terms right. Otherwise, people like headline writers for newspapers get confused. Here are the spike protein uh, amino acid changes. Is it, there are two different deletions, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven single amino acid changes. So that's the all the changes in the um, spike protein of this variant. And they, they go on further to say an increasing fraction in southern England will share several of these, and a handful have been seen through imports in other countries. And what I'm going to do now is show you where these are located. So remember, the, the viral particle on the lower left is studded with spike glycoproteins that attach to the cell receptor. They're very important. We're making antibodies against the spike in our vaccines to prevent infection. So the spike is biologically very important for the virus. And that spike is a trimer of three polypeptide chains. And the structure of that is shown on the right two panels here. So we're looking at down from the top at the spike trimer. So you can see from the schematic on the lower left, it's a trimer. And if you look down from the top, you have one, two, three polypeptide chains. And on the right, we're looking from the side. And here in green is ACE2, the cell receptor. So in the light gray is the part of the spike that binds ACE2, you can see here. Okay, so we're gonna look at these changes. The changes in the spike in this variant are in different colors, as you can see down here, cyan, uh, orange, or gold. Uh, and blue. Let's take a look at where some of these changes are in the spike and what they they might mean for its function. So the blue are these single amino acid changes down here. There is one N501Y, which is in gold right there. And then in cyan, there are the deletions. And if you look at the right-hand panel here where ACE2 is binding to spike, you can see that one of these deletions is in the area of uh, where the spike binds. So it could change binding in some way. Based on the evaluation of effect on virus structure and function, the most relevant of all these changes might be N501Y, asparagine to tyrosine at amino acid 501 of the spike. That's in orange here. Uh, and here, the, there's three of them. So one, two, three. And you can see this uh, is potentially impacting the spike. And then they say uh, in positions contributing to potential spike surface variation, and, and there's a deletion at Y145, one of these cyan deletions is where some antibodies like one called 4A8 bind. All right, so the others they think have no apparent uh, interest. So the ones they're interested in is N501Y, that could affect the binding of host receptors and antibodies, and then the deletion where one of them in particular could affect an antibody binding site. So here they say the other mutations, the blue ones. So we, we've focused on cyan and gold. So the blue mutations, 
they say their effect on structure and function is less clear. And then they also say in another protein called orphate, there's a early stop codon that could be relevant. This causes a deletion in the orphate protein. And these have been seen before in other viruses isolated from Singapore and also other countries. They may actually have uh, a role to play in attenuation. They may make the virus less virulent which is not something you're hearing at all. All you're hearing is increased transmission. And finally, they, they conclude, as seen on many occasions before, mutations are naturally expected for viruses and are most often simply neutral regional markers useful for contact tracing. As I've just told you, mutations are naturally expected for viruses. The mutations seen have rarely been affecting viral fitness and almost never affect clinical outcome, but the detailed effects of these mutations remain to be determined fully. And that's a reasonable statement. In the past, we haven't seen any such changes make a big difference in transmission and disease in humans. But we should be aware of, of them going forward and make sure we study them. And I think that's perfectly fine. But what is not fine is all the hype now, uh, which is about this strain having higher transmission, which simply can't be concluded so far. There's one other document I want to refer to. And again, the, the URL for it is down here. It's from a committee called the Noon Emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group so they had a meeting on the 20th of december and here are the individuals in this meeting some of whom are virologists epidemiologists and so forth and they have looked at the data on this variant and they've made some conclusions so let me go through them with you because i think this document is what's scaring the world at the moment and i don't think it is justified so i'm going to label these nerve tag considerations First, within the UK, the variant is mostly in London, southeast and east of England, but has been detected in various parts, but it's mostly in those other areas. And a few have been reported internationally. One confirmed export from the UK to Australia. I would say it's already out uh, because, as they say here, a lot of other countries have lower sequencing capability than the UK and other countries. So it's not easy to know that the variant is already there because you have to sequence isolates from people to know this. Now, here are the data which lead the committee to be somewhat worried. Uh, first of all, studies of correlation of, between R values and detection of the variant, uh, which suggests an absolute increase in the R value of between 0.39 to 0.93. So R, of course, is the reproductive index, the likelihood that an infected person on average will infect so many other people, mm -hmm. right? So for SARS-CoV-2, we think it's between two and three without mitigation without doing any lockdown or any kind of masking or distancing and so forth. You can, you can reduce the reproductive index, obviously, by interfering with transmission. And so they're saying that um, in places where they see this variant, the, the R value is increasing. However, I would say, and again, this is my theme, you can't use epidemiological data to prove a biological effect of a amino acid change in a virus. You have to do experiments to do that. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, ah, there is an increase in the transmissibility. It must be because of the variant. Well, obviously that's a flawed argument. That's not how we do science. The other piece of data is the CT value for the PCR, right? They take nasal swabs from patients, they do PCR, they get a CT value, which is reflective of how many RNA copies are present in the sample. They say there's a decrease of CT of around two associated with the new variant. Now, you know, the CT values can go anywhere from 11 to 35 or so. That's the range, 11 being a lot of RNA and 35 
very little and probably not infectious. So they're saying, and people infected with this variant, we're seeing the CT value decrease, they have more RNA, so that must mean that the virus is reproducing better in them. And they also cite viral load experiments. In other words, they take a nasopharyngeal swab, extract nucleic acid, sequence it, to convert it to DNA and amplify it, then they sequence it. And then you can calculate the number of RNA copies originally present, and they see they're, they're seeing more RNA copies. So those are mainly the three pieces of data that they use to conclude that they have moderate confidence that this variant demonstrates a substantial increase in transmissibility compared to other variants. So there are two adjectives in this sentence that I disagree with. Moderate, I don't agree moderate confidence, and substantial don't agree at all i think these are all circumstantial evidences that do not prove anything you can imagine that our value could change by other things that are affecting transmission um and so you can't conclude it's the actual virus and as i said if the virus is introduced into a population by founder effect and it's neutral it's not going to have any effect on the r value and the pcr is flawed in itself cannot use PCR to measure infectious virus. And that's really what matters. If you want to conclude that this virus is more transmissible, you need to measure infectious virus. And I'll get back to that later. PCR doesn't measure infectious virus. And I can imagine, for example, you have a variant that makes more smaller pieces of RNA in the infected cells. So the PCR shows a lower CT value. Completely flawed argument to indicate that this is uh, leading to increased transmissibility. Uh, but they then say, we, ha- we don't have enough data to draw any conclusions about the following. First, the mechanism of increased transmissibility. I would say we don't yet know that there is increased transmissibility caused by these particular amino acid changes. And so they say, for example, increased viral load. Well, you have to measure infectious virus. You can't use PCR to do that. Age distribution, disease severity, I think, if anything, this variant is going to cause less severe disease because of the orphate deletion. And then finally, antigenic escape. So as I said earlier, the location of these uh, amino acid changes, they're using the wrong terminology as well. Uh, The uh, location of the amino acid changes in the receptor binding domain of the spike raises the possibility that this is antigenically distinct, and they've identified four reinfections among 915 people with this variant. But tell me how many reinfections you see with the other variants as well. Is it not different? Uh, This uh, is one antigenic site, one epitope of the spike. And there are about 20 B and T cell epitopes on the spike. I really don't think that one change, one epitope change is going to make much of a difference. And so they want more data on reinfection, readmission, and case fatality rates, which are apparently being collected more on the age distribution. And then this one, this third one, I think is important to look at in vitro data on the ability of convalescent sera to neutralize the variant, to see if the amino acid change in the antigenic site impacts the ability of convalescent sera to block infection, which would have, of course, implications for vaccines. But I don't think there are any. As I said, this is one out of many epitopes. It is unlikely that it would make uh, the virus uh, unable to be neutralized, say, by antibodies that are induced by vaccination. And finally, they want to know if lateral flow assays to detect um, this variant, these would be antigen assays, would be compromised in any way. I think it depends on how you've set up the lateral flow assay, of course. If you're using more than one uh, antibody, uh, you're, you're 
probably better off. Now, here's what I think about this whole story. I would say I have low confidence that this variant demonstrates a substantial increase in transmissibility. I don't see any evidence for that. I, I don't see shedding evidence for increased transmission. So if you think a virus is transmitting better, uh, one possibility is that it's more stable in the environment and that can be tested. Another possibility is that the infected people shed more virus in respiratory secretions. That can be tested. So measure shedding and compare it to people infected with the other variants that are circulating in these areas. Not everyone is infected with this variant. However, NerveTag doesn't have this on their list of experiments. And as I said, PCR and sequencing cannot answer this question. Nucleic acid is not infectious virus. This experiment is not going to be easy because you have to have a cohort of people infected with this variant and a variant that's different, predecessor, for example, and compare shedding by isolating virus. Uh, and you have to do that in cell culture in a BSL-3 laboratory, of course. And the, the confounding problem is that when you take a nasopharyngeal swab, for example, you get there's slightly different volume from each person. So you have to somehow normalize them when you do your infectivity calculation. Not an easy thing to do. And remember that not too long ago, another variant, D614G, arose and propagated throughout the world. And similar uh, scary stories were told about that one, increased transmissibility. But it was nothing was ever done in humans to really address that, including the experiments that I'm suggesting. But in the end, I object to the use of epidemiological data to prove the biological properties of a virus. You need to do experiments with the virus to prove that you have increased transmissibility or at least properties that are consistent with increased transmissibility, and that simply has not been done. In my opinion, all the hype about this variant is unwarranted. Certainly, we have to pay attention to it. We have to study it. But so far, I see no reason why this variant is any different from any others that have arisen. I think we should move on from the scary headlines and get ahead with vaccination programs which are underway and that is going to be the way that we get away from this pandemic. I hope you found that explanation useful. I'm Vincent Racaniello and I'm Earth's virology professor. Thanks for watching. Okay, um, so I had a couple uh, thoughts about that myself, and um, he didn't mention anything about the vaccinations, and it's just like the regular flu. You have variants every year, and then they have to do a modification on the flu, and it's a hit or miss type thing. Um, so, I think that would be my argument on that one, um, since I don't have a lot of um, medical knowledge. That's pretty much all I know, and that would be my argument. Thanks for listening.